0: Hello, this is Rick, and welcome to The Presence Podcast. You are here for another special episode. As part of the remote learning that my students and I are doing during this time of the pandemic, I've been recording various wisdom literature books from the Old Testament. And today we get to the most challenging, perhaps, the most significant, and I think quite frankly, the most relevant, and that is the book of Job. So a little bit of background uh, on the book of Job and the translation I'll be reading, and then we'll take a little break, and then we will come and uh, listen to excerpts. It's a long book. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but we'll read some highlights from the book of Job. Now, the book of Job is about what could be said the vindication Of God. And that another word for that is called theodicy, which literally means the vindication of God. Well, what does that mean? Vindication means that someone is cleared of blame. Now, what is God to blame for? Well, look at the world, right? Why is the world so messed up? Why are we facing a pandemic that? It was just announced today, as I record this, that 40,000 Americans alone, just Americans, have died from COVID-19. Where, where's God in the midst of that? Did God cause the pandemic? Is God absent? Where's God in the midst of that? And this is an age-old question. And today, the question takes on this very simple form. We say, traditionally in monotheistic, Christian, Jewish, and um, we would say um, Islam religions, faiths, traditions, that God is almighty, all-powerful, which means all-knowing, all-powerful, and that God is all-loving, but then there's evil, right? This is sometimes called the inconsistent triad, all-knowing slash all-powerful, then all-loving, but where does evil come in? So you have a couple of ways to look at this, right? Well, maybe God isn't all-knowing. God is all-loving. God wants the best for us, but God isn't all-powerful, can't control things like pandemics. Or perhaps the other is true, that God is not all-loving. God is all-powerful, but God allows this to happen because God is not all-loving. So that's the problem. And this is a basic human question. Why do we suffer? Um, A famous rabbi Kushner back in, I think, the 1960s or 1970s wrote a very famous book called When Bad Things Happen to Good People. And it was all about this question, why do we suffer? Well, the biblical wisdom literature has a book that is dedicated to that question, puts it in story form, but the entire book really is based on that question. What happens when a righteous man in this case, it's Job, suffers. Why? What's going on? And what is he going to do? And where's God in this? What does God have to say about this? So that's the book that we will be um, hearing today. Again, this will just be excerpts. And just a quick background on the book of Job. It was probably written around the time of the exile, the 6th century BCE, Uh, Satan appears in it at the beginning in a very interesting little wager sort of uh, scene. Um, Satan literally means uh, the accuser. And you'll hear Satan as a character in this is being accusatory and makes this sort of uh, claim that God and Satan um, are going to see what happens to Job, this righteous man. Now, one last word before our break and the start of the reading. I'm going to read from a translation that I don't often use. It's the Message Bible Translation. Now, the Message Bible is a a unique Bible. It's a few years old now. Uh, It's been out for probably, gosh, probably more than a few years, probably 20 years or maybe even closer to 30 years. And it is, um, Eugene Peterson is the translator and it is known for very modern language, almost conversational and, and sometimes kind of slang, language, kind of trying to be sort of hip. And um, so it, it's a mixed translation. It's, it's definitely not a, um, a literal translation in the, in the sense of trying to be very close to the original um, Greek in the New Testament or, or Hebrew in the Old Testament. Um, but it does try to make um, the stories relevant And I want to read Job in this translation, in this language, because it's a very modern story, especially in the midst of what we're facing right now, and the horrors that you hear people enduring. Um, And where's God in the midst of this? But what does this tradition, the wisdom literature tradition, have to say about that? What's the answer? So stay with me through this short break, and we will come back with excerpts of the story of the book of Job. Job. Job was a man who lived in ooze. He was honest inside and out, a man of his word, who was totally devoted to God and hated evil with a passion. He had seven sons and three daughters. He was also very wealthy, 7,000 head of sheep, 3,000 head of camels, 500 teams of oxen, 500 donkeys, and a huge staff of servants, the most influential man in all the East. His sons used to take turn hosting parties in their homes, always inviting their three sisters to join them in their merrymaking. When the parties were over, Job would get up early in the morning and sacrifice a burnt offering for each of his children, thinking maybe one of them sinned by defying God inwardly. Job made a habit of this sacrificial atonement just in case they'd sinned. The first test, family, and fortune. One day, when the angels came to report to God, Satan, who was the designated accuser, came along with them. God singled out Satan and said, What have you been up to? Satan answered God, Go in here and there, checking things out on earth. God said to Satan, Have you noticed, my friend Job, there's no one quite like him, honest and true to his word, totally devoted to God and hating evil. Satan retorted, So... Do you think Job does all that out of the sheer goodness of his heart? Why, no one ever had it so good. You pamper him like a pet, making sure nothing bad ever happens to him or his family or his possessions. Bless everything he does. He can't lose. But what do you think would happen if you reached down and took away everything that is his? He'd curse you right to your face. That's what. God replied, We'll see. Go ahead. Do what you want with all that is his. Just don't hurt him. Then Satan left the presence of God. Sometime later, while Job's children were having one of their parties at the home of their oldest son, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys grazing in the field next to us. When Sabaeans attacked, they stole the animals and killed the field hands. I'm the only one to get out alive and tell you what happened. While he was still talking, another messenger arrived and said, bolts of lightning struck the sheep and the shepherds and fried them, burned them to a crisp. I'm the only one to get out alive and tell you what happened. While he was still talking, another messenger arrived and said, Chaldeans coming from three directions, raided the camels and massacred the camel drivers. I'm the only one to get out alive and tell you what happened. While he was still talking, another messenger arrived and said, your children were having a party at the home of the oldest brother When a tornado swept in off the desert and struck the house, it collapsed on the young people and they died. I'm the only one to get out alive and tell you what happened. Job got to his feet, ripped his robe, shaved his head, and then fell to the ground and worshipped. Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I'll return to the womb of the earth. God take, God gives, God takes. God's name be blessed. Not once, through all this, did Job sin. Not once did he blame God. Chapter two. One day, when the angels came to report to God, Satan also showed up. God singled out Satan and saying, what have you been up to? Satan answered God, oh, going here and there, checking things out. Then God said to Satan, have you noticed my friend Job? There's no one quite like him, is there? Honest and true to his word, totally devoted to God and hating evil, he still has a firm grip on his integrity. You tried to trick me into destroying him, but it didn't work. Satan answered, A human would do anything to save his life. But what do you think would happen if you reached down and took away his health? He'd curse you to your face, that's what. God said, All right, go ahead, you can do what you'd like to him but mind you, don't kill him. Satan left God and struck Job with terrible sores. Job was ulcers and scabs from head to foot. They itched and oozed so badly that he took a piece of broken pottery to scrape himself Then went and sat on a trash heap among the ashes. His wife said, Still holding on to your precious integrity, are you? Curse God and be done with it. Job told her, You are talking like an empty-headed fool. We take the good days from God. Why not also the bad days? Not once through all this did Job sin. He said nothing against God. Job's three friends. Three of Job's friends heard of all the trouble that had fallen on him. Each traveled from his own country. Eliphaz from Taman, Bildad from Shulah, Zophar from Namath and went together to Job to keep him company and comfort him. When they first caught sight of him, they couldn't believe what they saw. They hardly recognized him. They cried out and lament, rip, ripped their robes, and dumped dirt on their heads as a sign of their grief. Then they sat with him on the ground. Seven days and nights they sat there without saying a word. They could see how rotten he felt, how deeply he was suffering. Chapter 3 Then Job broke the silence. He spoke up and cursed his fate. Obliterate the day I was born. Blank out the night I was conceived. Let it be a black hole in space. May God above forget it ever happened. Erase it from the books. May the day of my birth be buried in deep darkness, shrouded by the fog, swallowed by the night. And the night of my conception. The devil take it. Rip the date off the calendar. Delete it from the almanac. Oh, turn that night into pure nothingness, no sounds of pleasure from that night ever. May those who are good at cursing curse that day. Unleash the sea beast, Leviathan, on it. May its morning stars turn to black cinders, waiting for a daylight that never comes, never once seeing the first light of dawn. And why? Because it released me from my mother's womb into a life with so much trouble. Why didn't I die at birth, my first breath out of the womb, my last? Why were there arms to rock me and breasts for me to drink from? I could be resting in peace right now, asleep forever, feeling no pain, in the company of kings and statesmen in their royal ruins, or with princes resplendent in their gold and silver tombs. Why wasn't I stillborn and buried with all the babies who never saw light, where the wicked no longer trouble anyone and bone-weary people get a long-deserved rest?' prisoners sleep undisturbed, never again to wake up to the bark of God, the guards. The small and the great are equals in that place, and slaves are free from their masters. Why does God bother giving light to the miserable? Why bother keeping bitter people alive, those who want in the worst way to die and can't, who can't imagine anything better than death, who count the day of their death and the burial the happiest day of their life? What's the point of life when it doesn't make sense, when God blocks all the roads to meaning? Instead of bread, I get groans for my supper, then leave the table and vomit my anguish. The worst of my fears has come true. What I've dreaded most has happened. My repose is shattered. My peace destroyed. No rest for me, ever. Death has invaded life. So the total book of Job is 41 chapters, and after chapter 3, which I just read, um, the pattern in the book, the middle part of the book, is that each of his three friends comes to Job and try to tell him that his suffering is because of sin, and they give him different arguments and they claim that they know of the sins that he's committed. And to each one, Job replies, saying, "No, no, that I am righteous; I haven't sinned," and continues to rail against God for the injustice of his suffering. So I'm skipping ahead, actually, to chapter 22, and I'm going to read 22 through 27. They're they're pretty short chapters, um, but this gives you a flavor of how the friends and Job are interacting. And then we end. Actually, 27 is Job's last lament. And these really are lamentations. Um, This is Job's last lament uh, before God talks to him later in the book, and that'll be the the third segment of this um, recording. So here we are with chapter 22, and this is one of the three friends again trying to convince Job there must have been a sin that he did. He just needs to admit it. Once again, Eliphaz the Temanite took up his theme Are any of us strong enough to give God a hand or smart enough to give him advice? So what if you were righteous? Would God Almighty even notice? Even if you gave a perfect performance, do you think he'd applaud? Do you think it's because he cares about your purity that he's disciplining you, putting you on the spot? Hardly. It's because you're a first-class moral failure, because there's no end to your sins. When people came to you for help, you took the shirts off their backs exploited their helplessness. You wouldn't so much as give a drink to the thirsty or food, not even a scrap to the hungry. And there you sat, strong and honored by everyone, surrounded by immense wealth. You turned poor widows away from your door, heartless, you crushed orphans. Now you're the one trapped in terror, paralyzed by fear. Suddenly, the tables have turned. How do you like living in the dark? Sightless, up to your neck in floodwaters? You agree, don't you, that God is in charge? He runs the universe, just look at the stars. Yet you dare raise questions. What does God know? From that distance in darkness, how can he judge? He roams the heavens wrapped in clouds, so how can he see them? Are you gonna persist in that tired old line that wicked men and women have always used? Where did it get them? They died young, flash floods sweeping them off to their doom. They told God, get lost. What good is God Almighty to us? And yet it was God who gave them everything they had. It is beyond me how they can carry on like this. Good people see bad people crash and call for a celebration. Relieve, they crow. At last, our enemies wiped out. Everything they had and stood for is up in smoke. Give in to God, Job. Come to terms with him and everything will turn out just fine. Let him tell you what to do. Take his words to heart. Come back to God Almighty and he'll rebuild your life. Clean house of everything evil. Relax your grip on your money and abandon your gold-plated luxury. God Almighty will be your treasure, more wealth than you can imagine. You'll take delight in God, the Mighty One, and look to him joyfully, boldly. You'll pray to him and he'll listen. He'll help you do what you've promised you'll decide what you want and it will happen your life will be bathed in light to those who feel low you'll say chin up be brave and god will save them yes even the guilty will escape escape through god's grace in your life chapter 23 job replied i'm not letting up i'm standing my ground My complaint is legitimate. God has no right to treat me like this. It isn't fair. If I knew where on earth to find him, I'd go straight to him. I'd lay my case before him face to face, give him all my arguments firsthand. I'd find out exactly what he's thinking, discover what's going on in his head. Do you think he'd dismiss me or bully me? No, he'd take me seriously. Hid, see a straight living man standing before him. My judge would acquit me for good of all charges. I travel east looking for him. I find no one. Then west, but not a trace. I go north, but he's hidden his tracks. Then south, but not even a glimpse. But He knows where I am and what I've done. He can cross-examine me all he wants and I'll pass the test with honors i followed him closely, my feet in his footprints, not once swerving from his way. I've obeyed every word he's spoken, and not just obeyed his advice. I've treasured it. But he is singular and sovereign. Who can argue with him? He does what he wants, when he wants to. He'll complete in detail what he's decided about me, and whatever else he determines to do. Is it any wonder that I dread meeting him? Whenever I think about it, I get scared all over again. God makes my heart sink. God Almighty gives me the shutters. Completely in the dark, I can't see my hand in front of my face. Chapter 24 But if Judgment Day isn't hidden from the Almighty, why are we kept in the dark? There are people out there getting by with murder, stealing and lying and cheating. They rip off the poor and exploit the unfortunate. Push the helpless into the ditch. Bully the weak so that they fear for their lives. The poor, like stray dogs and cats, scavenge for food in back alleys. They sort through the garbage of the rich, eke out survival on handouts. Homeless, they shiver through cold night on the streets. They've no place to lay their heads. Exposed to the weather, wet and frozen, they huddle in makeshift shelters. Nursing mothers have had their babies snatched from them. The infants of the poor are kidnapped and sold. They go about patched and threadbare. Even the hard workers go hungry. No matter how backbreaking their labor, they can never make eat ends meet. People are dying left and right, groaning in torment. The wretched cry out for help, and God does nothing, acts like nothing's wrong. Then there are those who avoid light at all costs, who scorn the light-filled path. When the sun goes down, the murderer gets up, kills the poor, and robs the defenseless. Sexual predators can't wait for nightfall, thinking no one can see us now. Burglars do their work at night, but keep well out of sight through the day. They want nothing to do with light. Deep darkness is mourning for that bunch. They make the terrors of darkness their companions in crimes. They are scraps of wood floating on the water, useless, cursed junk, good for nothing. As surely as snow melts under the hot summer sun, sinners disappear in the grave. The womb has forgotten them. Worms have relished them. Nothing that is evil lasts. Unscrupulous, they prey on those less fortunate. However much they strut and flex their muscles, there's nothing to them. They're hollow. They might have an illusion of security, but God has his eye on them. They may get their brief successes, but then it's over. Nothing to show for it. Like yesterday's newspaper, they're used to wrap up the garbage. You're free to try to prove me a liar, but you won't be able to do it. Chapter 25 Bildad, the Shulite, again attacked Job God is sovereign, God is fearsome Everything in the cosmos fits and works in his plan Can anyone count his angel armies? Is there a place where his light doesn't shine? How can a mere mortal presume to stand up for God? to God? How can an ordinary person pretend to be guiltless? Well, even the moon has its flaws And even the stars aren't perfect in God's eyes So how much less plain men and women, slugs and maggots by comparison? Chapter 26. Job answered, Well, you've certainly been a great help to a helpless man. You came to the rescue just in the nick of time. What wonderful advice you've given to a mixed-up man. What amazing insights you've provided. Where in the world did you learn all this? How did you become so inspired? All the buried dead are in torment, and all who've been drowned in the deep, deep sea. Hell is ripped open before God, graveyards dug up and exposed. He spreads the skies over unformed space, hangs the earth out in empty space. He pours water into cumulus cloud bags and the bags don't burst. He makes the moon wax and wane, putting it through its phases. He draws the horizon out over the ocean, sets a boundary between light and darkness. Thunder crashes and rumbles in the sky. Listen, it's God raising his voice. By his power, he stills sea storms. By his wisdom, he tames sea monsters. With one breath, he clears the sky. With one finger, he crushes the sea serpent. And this is the only beginning, a mere whisper of his rule. Whatever would we do if he really raised his voice? Chapter 27 Having waited for Zophar, Job now resumed his defense. God alive! He's denied me justice. God Almighty, he's ruined my life. For as long as I draw breath and for as long as God breathed life into me, I refused to say one word that isn't true. I refuse to confess to any charge that's false. There is no way I'll ever agree to your accusations. I'll not deny my integrity, even if it costs me my life. I'm holding fast to my integrity and not loosening my grip. And believe me, I'll never regret it. Let my enemy be exposed as wicked. Let my adversary be proven guilty. What hope do people without God have when life is cut short, when God puts an end to life? Do you think God will listen to their cry for help when disaster hits? What interest have they ever shown in the Almighty? Have they ever been known to pray before? I've given you a clear account of God in action, Suppress nothing regarding God Almighty. The evidence is right before you. You can see it all for yourselves. So why do you keep talking nonsense? I'll quote your own words back to you. This is how God treats the wicked. This is what evil people can expect from God Almighty. Their children, all of them, will die violent deaths. They'll never have enough bread to put on the table. They'll be wiped out by the plague, and none of the widows will shed a tear when they're gone. Even if they make a lot of money and are resplendent in the latest fashions, it's the good who will end up wearing the clothes and the decent who will divide up the money. They build elaborate houses that won't survive a single winter. They go to bed wealthy and wake up poor. Terrors pour in on them like flash floods. A tornado snatches them away in the middle of the night. A cyclone sweeps them up. Gone! Not a trace of them left. Not even a footprint. Catastrophes relentlessly pursue them. They run this way and that, but there's no place to hide. Pummeled by the weather, blown to kingdom come by the storm. We all know, chapter 28, we all know how silver seams the rocks. We've seen the stuff from which gold is refined. We are aware of how iron is dug out of the ground and copper is smelted from rocks. Miners penetrate the earth's darkness, searching the roots of the mountains for ore, digging away the suffocating darkness... Far from civilization, far from the traffic, they cut a shaft and are lowered into it by ropes. Earth's surface is a field for grain, but its depths are a forge, firing sapphires from stones and chiseling gold from rocks. Vultures are blind to its riches. Hawks never lay eyes on it. Wild animals are oblivious to it. Lions don't know it's there. Miners hammer away at the rock. They uproot the mountain. They tumble through the rock and find all kinds of beautiful gems. They discover the origin of rivers and brings Earth's secrets to light. But where, oh where, will they find wisdom? Where does insight hide? Mortals don't have a clue, Haven't the slightest idea where to look. Earth's depths say, it's not here. Ocean, deeps, eek, echo, never heard of it. It can't be bought with the finest gold. No amount of silver can get it. Even famous Ophir gold can't buy it. Not even diamonds and sapphires. Neither gold nor emeralds are comparable. Extravagant jewelry can't touch it. Pearl necklaces and ruby bracelets, why bother? None of this is even a down payment on wisdom. Pile gold and African diamonds as high as you will, they can't hold a candle to wisdom. So where does wisdom come from and where does insight live? can't be found by looking, no matter how deep you dig, no matter how high you fly. If you search through a graveyard and question the dead, they say, we've only heard rumors of it. God alone knows the way to wisdom. He knows the exact place to find it. He knows where everything is on the earth. He sees everything under heaven. After he commanded the winds to blow and measured out the waters, arranged for the rain and set off explosions of thunder and lightning, he focused on wisdom, made sure it was all set and tested and ready. Then he addressed the human race. Here it is. Fear of the Lord. That's wisdom. And insight means shunning evil. So we now enter the third and final part of the story of Job, So we ended in 27 and Job goes on lamenting like that for a while. Eventually another friend shows up who tries to kind of strike the balance and make peace between Job and the three previous friends who've been trying to convince Job that, well, there had to have been something Job did wrong. And Job just keeps saying, no, I didn't do anything wrong, but curse God for God doing all this terrible stuff for me. So now God gets in his word. And I want you to think about what God doesn't say here. All right. God doesn't explain why God causes evil or if God causes evil or how the whole, what we talked about at the beginning, theodicy, how that whole thing works out. No, God does something very different here. And I want you to listen to what God says, the examples God gives questions God raises, and Job's response, and then the conclusion of the book. And I want you to ask, is the conclusion satisfying? Okay. We've gone through this whole process with Job and with God, which is what we're about to hear. And are you satisfied with the ending? So here goes. This is chapter 38, and we'll go through 41. And now, finally, God answered Job from the eye of a violent storm. He said, why do you confuse the issue? Why do you talk without knowing what you're talking about? Pull yourself together, Job, up on your feet, stand tall. I have some questions for you and I want some straight answers. Where were you when I created the earth? Tell me, since you know so much, who decided on its size? Certainly you'll know that. Who came up with the blueprints and measurements? How was its foundation poured, and who set the cornerstone? While the morning star sang in chorus, and all the angels shouted praise. And who took charge of the ocean when it gushed forth like a baby from the womb? That was me. I wrapped it in soft clouds and tucked it in safely at night. Then I made a playpen for it, a strong playpen so it couldn't run loose, and said— Stay here. This is your place. Your wild tantrums are confined to this place. And if you ever ordered morning, get up and told dawn, get to work. So you could seize earth like a blanket and shake out the wicked like cockroaches. As the sun brings everything to light, brings out all the colors and shapes, the cover of darkness is snatched from the wicked. They're caught in the very act. Have you ever gotten to the true bottom of things, explored the labyrinthine caves of deep ocean? Do you know the first thing about death? Do you have one clue regarding death's dark mysteries? And do you have any idea how large this earth is? Speak up if you have even the beginning of an answer. Do you know where light comes from and where darkness lives? So you can take them by the hand and lead them from home when they get lost? Why, of course you know that. You've known them all your life, grown up in the same neighborhood with them. Have you ever traveled to where the snow is made, seen the vault where hail is stockpiled, the arsenals of hail and snow that I keep in readiness for times of trouble and battle and war? Can you find your way to where lightning is launched, or to the place from where the wind blows? Who do you suppose carves canyons for the downpours of rain and charts the route of thunderstorms? Thunderstorms that bring water to unvisited fields, deserts no one ever lays eyes on, drenching the useless wasteland so they're carpeted with wildflowers and grass. And who do you think is the father of rain and dew, the mother of ice and frost? You don't for a minute imagine these marvels of weather just happen, do you? Can you catch the eye of the beautiful Pleiades sisters or distract Orion from his hunt? Can you get Venus to look your way or get the great Baron or Cubs to come out and play? Do you know the first thing about the sky's constellations and how they affect things on earth? Can you get the attention of the clouds and commission a shower of rain? Can you take charge of the lightning bolts and have them report to you for orders? What do you have to say for yourself, Job? Who do you think gave weather wisdom to the ibis and storm savvy to the rooster? Does anyone know enough to number all the clouds or tip over the rain barrels of heaven? When the earth is cracked and dry, the ground baked as hard as a brick? Can you teach the lioness to stalk her prey and satisfy the appetite of her cubs as they crouch in their den waiting hungrily in their cave? Who sets the food out for the ravens when their young cry to God, fluttering about because they have no food? Chapter 39. Do you know the month when mountain goats give birth? Have you ever watched a doe bear her fawn? Do you know how many months she is pregnant? Do you know the season of her delivery, when she crouches down and drops her offspring? Her young ones flourish and are soon on their own. They leave and don't come back. Who do you think set the wild donkey free, open the corral gates and let him go? I gave him the whole wilderness to Roman, the rolling places and wide open places, and the plains too. He laughs at his city cousins who are harnessed and harried. He's oblivious to the cries of teamsters. He gazes freely through the hills, nibbling anything that's green. Will the wild buffalo consent to serve you? Volunteer to spend the night in your barn? Can you imagine hitching your plow to a buffalo and getting him to till till your fields? He's usually strong, yes, but could you trust him? Would you dare turn the job over to him? You wouldn't for a minute depend on him, would you? To do what you said when you said it. The ostrich flaps her wings futilely, all those beautiful feathers, but useless. She lays her eggs on the hard ground, leaves them there in the dirt, exposed to the weather, not caring that they might get stepped on and cracked or trampled by some wild animal. She's negligent with her young, as if they weren't even hers. She cares nothing about anything. She wasn't created very smart, that's for sure. Wasn't given her share of good sense. But when she runs, oh, how she runs, laughing, leaving horse and rider in the dust. Are you the one who gave the horse his prowess and adorned him with a shimmering mane? Did you create him to prance proudly and strike terror with his royal snorts? He paws the ground fiercely, eager and spirited, then charges into the fray. He laughs at danger, fearless, doesn't shy away from the sword. The banging and clanging of Quiver and Lance doesn't faze him. He quivers with excitement and at the trumpet blast races off in a gallop. At the sound of the trumpet, he neighs mightily, smelling the excitement of battle from a long way off, catching the rolling thunder of the war cries. Was it through your know-how that the hawk learned to fly, soaring effortlessly on thermal updrafts? Did you command the eagle's flight and teach her to build her nest in the heights, perfectly at home on the high cliff face, invulnerable on pinnacle and crag? From her perch, see she searches for prey, spies it at a great distance. Her young gorge themselves on carry on. Wherever there's roadkill, you'll see her circling. Chapter forty. God then confronted Job directly. Now what do you have to say for yourself? Are you going to haul me, the mighty one, into court and press charges? Job answers, God, I'm ready to shut up and listen. Job answered, I'm speechless, in awe, words fail me, I should have never opened my mouth, I've talked too much, way too much, I'm ready to shut up and listen. God's second set of questions, I want straight answers. God addressed Job next from the eye of the storm and this is what he said, I have some more questions for you and I want straight answers. Do you presume to tell me what I'm doing wrong? Are you calling me a sinner so you can be a saint? Do you have an arm like my arm? Can you shout in thunder the way I can? Go ahead, show your stuff. Let's see what you're made of, what you can do. Unleash your outrage. Target the arrogant and lay them flat. Target the arrogant and bring them to their knees. Stop the wicked in their tracks. Make mincemeat of them. Dig a mass grave and dump them in it. Faceless corpses in an unmarked grave. I'll gladly step aside and hand things over to you. You can surely save yourself with no help from me. Look at the land beast, behemoth. I created him as well as you, grazing on grass, docile as a cow. Just look at the strength of his back, the powerful muscles of his belly. His tail sways like a cedar in the wind and his huge legs are like beech trees. His skeleton is made of steel, every bone in his body hard as steel most magnificent of all my creatures. But still, I lead him around like a lamb. The grass-covered hills serve him meals while field mice frolic in his shadow. He takes afternoon naps under shade trees, cools himself in the reedy swamps, lazily cool in the leafy shadows as the breeze moves through the willows. And when the river rages, he doesn't budge, stolid and unperturbed, even when the Jordan goes wild. But you never want this hippopotamus, the leviathan, for a pet. You'd never be able to housebreak him. Or can you pull this, chapter 41, or can you pull the sea beast, Leviathan, with a fly rod and stuff him in your creel? Can you lasso him with a rope or snag him with an anchor? Will he beg you over and over for mercy or flatter you with flowery speech? Will he apply for a job with you to run errands and serve you for the rest of your life? Will you play with this giant squid as if he were a pet goldfish? Will you make him the mascot of the neighborhood children? Will you put him on display in the market and have shoppers haggle over the price? Could you shoot him full of arrows like a pincushion, or drive harpoons into his huge head? If you so much lay a hand on him, you won't live to tell the story. What hope would you have with such a creature? Why, look at him! One look at him would do you in. If you can't hold your own against his glowering visage, How then, do you, Job, expect to stand up to me? Who could confront me and get by with it? I'm in charge of all this. I run this universe. But I have more to say about Leviathan, the sea beast, the squid, his enormous bulk, his beautiful shape. Who would even dream of piercing that tough skin or putting those jaws into bit and bridle? And who would dare knock at the door of his mouth, filled with row upon row of fierce teeth? His pride is invincible, nothing can make a dent in that pride, nothing can get through that proud skin, impervious to weapons and weather, the thickest and toughest hides, impenetrable. He snorts and the world lights up with fire, he blinks and the dawn breaks, comets pour out of his mouth, fireworks arc and branch, smoke erupts from his nostrils like steam from a boiling pot. He blows and fires blaze. Fire, flames of fire stream from his mouth. All muscle he is. Sheer and seamless muscle. To meet him is to dance with death. Sinewy and lithe. There's not a soft spot in his entire body. As tough inside as out. Rock hard and vulnerable. Even angels run for cover when he surfaces, cowering before his tail-thrashing turbulence. Javelin's bars bounce harmlessly off his hide. Harpoons ricochet wildly. Iron bars are so much straw to him. Brawn weapons beneath notice. Arrows don't even make him blink. Bullets make no more impression than raindrops. A battle axe is nothing but a splinter of kindling. He treats a brandished harpoon as a joke. His belly is armor-plated, inexorable, unstoppable as a barge. He roils deep ocean the way you'd boil water. He whips the sea like you'd whip an egg into batter. With a luminous tail stretching out behind him, you might think ocean had grown a gray beard. There's nothing on this earth quite like him. Not an ounce of fear in that creature. He surveys all the high and mighty. King of the ocean. King of the deep. Chapter 42. Job answered, God, I'm convinced you can do anything and everything. Nothing and no one can upset your plans. You asked, who is this muddying the water, ignorantly confusing the issue, second guessing my purposes. I admit it. I was the one. I babbled on about things far beyond me, made small talk about wonders way over my head. He told me, listen, and let me do the talking. Let me ask the questions. You give the answers. I admit I once lived by rumors of you. Now I have it all firsthand for my own eyes and ears. I'm sorry. Forgive me. I'll never do that again. I promise I'll never live on crusts of hearsay ever again, nor crusts of rumor. After God had finished addressing Job, he turned to Eliphaz the Temanite and said, I've had it with you and your two friends. I'm fed up. You haven't been honest either with me or about me, not the way my friend Job has. So here's what you must do. Take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my friend Job. Sacrifice a burnt burnt offering on your own behalf. My friend Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer. He will ask me not to treat you as you deserve for talking nonsense about me and for not being honest with me as he has. So they did it. Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shulite, and Zophar the Namathite did what God commanded. and God accepted Job's prayer. After Job had interceded for his friends, God restored his fortune and then doubled it. All his brothers and sisters and friends came to his house and celebrated. They told him how sorry they were and consoled him for all the trouble God had brought him. Each of them brought generous housewarming gifts. God blessed Job's later life even more than his earlier life. He ended up with 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 teams of oxen, and 1,000 donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. He named the first daughter Dove, the second Cinnamon, and the third Dark Eyes. There was not a woman in that country as beautiful as Job's daughters. Their father treated them as equals with their brothers, providing the same inheritance. Job lived on another 140 years, living to see his children and grandchildren, four generations of them. Then he died, an old man, a full life. Thank you for listening to this reading of the highlights of the book of Job from the Message Bible by Eugene Peterson.